Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, and welcome to LeechFest, a medical history podcast where we think it's important to get tested regularly, because today we're talking about syphilis. What is it? Where does it come from? And why am I suddenly feeling a burning sensation? All of these questions we will answer in today's episode about one of medical history's great mysteries. And before we set sail on the ocean blue, that will make sense later, how have you been? Um, I've been okay. A lot of things have happened um, since we last talked. Um, I turned 26. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Thank you very much. That's uh, my life's <laughs> crowning achievement. Um, turned 26. <laughs> Just wait till you see 27. Yeah, I know. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, I've been okay. Turned 26. Bleached my eyebrows. Mm-hmm. Bleached my hair. Mm-hmm. Pierced my ears. Mm-hmm. Pierced her ears. Pierced my ears, yeah. Pierced my friend's ears. Uh-huh. Um, broke my computer. You've been... <laughs> <laughs> We're recording this on my computer. Yeah. Broke my computer this morning as mm-hmm. I was getting ready to finish up notes. Had a minor anxiety attack. Mm-hmm. But uh, other than that, I've been good. I feel like you've had a very sort of like return to high school type of uh, yeah. hangout. Like, yeah. it's like bleach eyebrows, a yeah. couple of new piercings, pa- like anxiety attacks. Yeah. Uh, re- yeah, return to teenage. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm looking back at it, it sounds a little bit like I'm experiencing like a quarter life crisis. <laughs> but... Who knows? I'm actually in great spirits. That's great. So that's nice. Love to hear it. Um, How have you been? I have been okay. I chopped off my finger while uh, cooking some bok choy. Mm -hmm. Um, Had to go to the emergency room Mm -hmm. only for them to just basically put some band-aid on me and like tell me I'm a good girl (laughs) for like seeking medical attention. Yeah. Um, Got angry at Stockholm Healthcare System because it's like run by three major hospital conglomerate companies. Uh, that have all been appointed by like rich capitalist pigs in the Stockholm uh, municipality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all corruption all the way up, and I have to listen to a fucking ad <laughs> to get contact to a nurse during a hotline. That's something you want when you want medical attention mm-hmm. and you're bleeding from your finger. Yeah. But I'm fine. Like, my finger's better. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, I was there when it happened, and they basically put you on hold for, like, 25 um, minutes while you're waiting to speak to a nurse. And, and, and before they even put you on <clears throat> on the line, they go through, like, your medical services today will be provided by, like, Private Medical Inc., mm-hmm. uh, who will handle all of your information and who employ their own nurses and doctors to handle your medical needs. Yeah, it's and not I'm like, really... I'm calling the government's helpline. I don't care about Healthcare Inc. Yeah. Yeah. I will destroy capitalism. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's very annoying. Um, and Stockholm's fault too. Swedish healthcare generally is pretty, it's pretty okay, good. It's except just for Stockholm, Stockholm which Stockholm is the just, corrupt ass. Yeah, it just really sucks. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about the Stockholm healthcare system too, but maybe this is a conversation for another day. <laughs> maybe we can make an episode about like public healthcare. Yeah, we could. Other than your chopped finger, is everything good with you? I think so. Yeah. Same old, same old. Yeah. You know. Working. I got interviewed for a major newspaper uh, mm. in Sweden. Mm. That article is probably going to be out by the time this episode comes out. Yeah, we, we can share it on Twitter, whatever, if people are interested in, in reading. Yeah. I did mention the podcast during the interview. Oh, really? But it did not come up in the actual article, so. 
How do you know that? Oh, because he sent me... Have I, have, haven't I shown you? No. Oh, well, he sent me the article. Oh. So I'm, I can show you after the podcast. Yeah, okay, that's that's too bad. <laughs> he was like, we don't care. <laughs> I, I talked for like like over two hours with this journalist and there's like 10 minutes worth of conversation that actually made it into the article. Mm. So... Yeah, they probably had to cut back on a lot yeah. of the things that you said. Yeah. Um, but it was anyway, fun. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it sounds fun. Except for the part where you had to stand outside for one hour in the freezing cold. Yeah, because they, they wanted to take pictures. They yeah. really wanted to take good pictures. So, yeah. like, for an hour, just parading me around, like, Stockholm Centrum. Like, Stockholm's prize pig. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just taking nice images, like, wanting to get, like, the skirt in motion for 20 minutes to, to get, like, a nice motion shot. Okay, but skirt goes spinny, though. Skirt That's does go spinny. That's important. a meme that I've invented. It's true. Yeah. All right. Before we go to the episode we want to thank our patrons for supporting our podcast and we want to to remind everybody that you know by becoming a patron you you really support our work and you make it possible for us to take it forward Mm -hmm. we also want to say that as a patron you get access to a lot of cool things like scripts early access to episodes and also a special video version with extra bits of content you also get a shout out in the episode itself this episode, we want to shout out Hazel Uber Kellogg. Thank you so much, Hazel, for supporting us. Yeah, thank you, Hazel. Uh, thanks to your help and the help of all of you, we can distribute and host this wonderful podcast where we will now spread information about syphilis. <laughs> all right. So for this episode, we're going to talk about syphilis and we are going to talk about its history primarily. But... Obviously, I want to give an overview, like a medical overview of the illness, like the what what causes it, what are the clinical manifestations, yeah. things like that. What is syphilis? What is syphilis? For, for those of you who don't know, what on earth is syphilis? Well, syphilis is caused by a bacterium by the name of Treponema pallidum and presents itself in four stages based on severity. Primary syphilis is characterized by one or a few small painless ulcers, which are typically located on the cervix, the penis or anally, which usually develop two to six weeks after contact with the infectious lesions of another person. Sec- the infectious lesions. Lesions. Oh. Yeah. The, yeah. The, this description of the symptoms is going to be a little bit graphic. I mean, we're talking about a sexually transmitted and disease like here. Medicine, medicine is graphic. Infectious medicine is graphic. Yeah. You're not listening to a medical history podcast if you want to have like a nice clinical discussion. You want the gore. Yeah. So you're, you're going to get gore. Yeah. Um, so that's the primary syphilis. It's, you know, it's pretty, pretty painless, pretty small. Uh, you know, you, you, you see it, but it's not, it's not like super gory. In secondary syphilis, you develop a diffuse rash on the trunk, hands, and the soles of the feet. And the secondary syphilis develops four to six weeks after primary infection. What is the trunk? Oh, it's like the main body. Like the um, the, the chest and the stomach and the back. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was that means. Okay. Yeah. It's like the trunk. Like humans don't have those. <laughs> I'm fairly sure. So it involves the formation of a diffuse rash on the trunk. The rashes may become postular. Uh, which means they get filled with pus and can harbor bacteria. Other symptoms include fever, sore throat, weight loss, hair loss, and headache. A third type of syphilis is latent syphilis, which occurs less than two years after original infection, and it involves harboring the bacteria without displaying symptoms. This phase can last many years, after which 15 to 40% of the people who have it usually develop tertiary syphilis. 
Tertiary syphilis, which is the last stage, can be further divided into three types, depending on symptoms. Gumatose syphilis, which is, I, I'm sorry, this is kind of a new word for me. Gumatose syphilis, in which soft, non-cancerous growths develop. Cardiovascular syphilis, which leads to heart complications, such as aortic aneurysms. And neurosyphilis, which affects the central nervous system and can lead to stroke, spinal cord palsy, dementia, psychosis, and others. The last type is possible because the bacteria is able to cross the blood-brain barrier, which is actually somewhat uncommon for bacteria. Oh. So I didn't know this before starting to do research for this episode, but syphilis is a really sneaky... <laughs> piece of work yeah. like both in the ways that it produces disease in the way that it infects various systems in the body the way that it evades the immune system and the kind of symptoms that it produces yeah. i was about to say this like the second you hear neuro mm-hmm. as part of like the last stage of a of a, of a disease mm-hmm. that's not that's, that's not good. good syphilis has also been called the great imitator because it causes symptoms similar to many other diseases and this is actually one of the reasons why it took kind of a long time for syphilis to be Right. diagnosed yeah. as a separate separate disease it used to be conflated with gonorrhea mm-hmm. i have a nice story about that later, oh, very actually. very good so the little bacteria that causes all of this is once again called treponema pallidum and it's a spiral shaped very mobile little little, <laughs> little bastard little bastard <laughs> It's, spiral shaped too. It's it really looks like a, like a corkscrew. It looks like a like a fusilo, like a fusilo. like a fusilo. No, it, like yeah, like you're getting one of those invaded by pasta. Yeah. So it's very mobile, and it's actually been said that part of the reason why it's so infectious is its mobility. And just to kind of put some numbers on this, an individual inoculated with 57 bacteria has a 50% chance of being infected. 57 bacteria... Like I, individual it, bacteria? Yeah, exactly. That's really not a lot. So it, it, it's really, really infectious. That's, um, yeah, that's awful. Because you need like a, a bit of like bacterial load... To sort of overwhelm something of the immune mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. to like even get in. Yeah. So it's it's yeah. very infectious and it's able to evade the immune system. Yeah. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how it does that. Ooh. So the bacteria is able to pass through intact mucous membranes as well as through lesions. So while syphilis is most commonly spread for sexual activity, it can also be spread through kissing near a lesion. So, you know, the mucous membranes in your mouth, the, the bacteria is able to pass through that, even mm. though even if you don't have any open wounds inside your mouth. In addition, it can also be transmitted from mother to baby during pregnancy and birth, which causes congenital syphilis. And this is caused by the fact that the syphilis bacterium can cross the placental barrier, which is another thing that not a lot of bacteria is able to do. So this is another way in which is very sneaky. <laughs> sneaky. It really goes everywhere. It can be transmitted through blood transfusions and sharing needles, but this is actually pretty limited because the bacteria is very fragile and dies very quickly outside the host. So it tolerates a pH range of 7.2 to 7.4, which is very narrow for Uh a bacteria, and a temperature range of 30 to 37 degrees Celsius, which is really great because it reduces transmissibility outside the host, but it's also one of the reasons why it's very difficult to study in vitro, meaning in cells. Because it's like, it's really made to like be inside a person. Inside a host, Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Sneaky bastard. I love that it's it's very sneaky. It's very infectious, but it's also kind of a diva. It's like <laughs> it's the I, kind of a diva. Yeah, like I can only do a 7.2 to 7.4 pH. If I'm Anything, not in the host, I will literally I will die. Die. <laughs> um, yeah, it's 
yeah it has a very specific taste it does it does um so now i'm gonna give a short overview of the pathophysiology so the way that it causes disease the root cause of the clinical symptoms is thought to be a local inflammation response to infection but due to the difficulty of culturing the bacteria in vitro in a non-human species, we actually don't know very much about the exact mechanisms through which it causes infection and damage. The bacteria is able to attach to numerous cell types, we know this, and it's also able to penetrate between tight cell junctions and can also secrete an enzyme degrading hyaluronic acid in the extracellular ma matrix, which facilitates invasion. All you need to know is that it's it's able to really drill itself into, into bacteria and, and like travel from... Is that why it's screw-shaped? I don't know. I'm just thinking like if it drills into like a corpse... No, that was just the word I used, okay. but, but it, it's, it's able to invade cells yeah. very easily. So overall, the bacteria causes activation of the host's inflammatory response, which causes local damage. The bacteria also doesn't have a lot of surface proteins, which the adaptive immune response can respond to. And also, the antibodies formed against the existing surface proteins are not very effective. So do you... Stealth. Yeah, stealth do you, bug. Yes. Do you remember when we talked about vaccines, that episode about vaccines? Um, and we talked about how um, the immune response, the adaptive immune response, is able to recognize very specific proteins on the surface of pathogens and then produce antibodies that recognize those pathogens specifically. Well, this one doesn't have a lot of those proteins. Yeah. So then the, the immune response just doesn't like know what yeah. it is and is not able to like target it. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's yeah, like it's, it's stealthy. It's very through. stealthy. Yeah. It's got um, like radar suppressing coating and yeah. the, the immune system is just like... I don't know what that is. I don't, I don't know. I a, don't know. A specter is haunting Europe and it's syphilis. Yeah, yeah. But some resistance to syphilis does occur. And we know this because not everybody who develops primary syphilis goes on to develop tertiary syphilis. So the uh, percentage of people that move through the stages gets lower and lower. So some sort of resistance exists. Mm -hmm. It's not fully known how immunity forms. But we think that it's a mix of antibody response, activation of macrophages, and T-cell T cell response. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the naming of the bacteria because it's really funny. It's so the infection was first called Grand Varole or the Great Pox by the French. So we have to remember here that syphilis has always been considered kind of a disgraceful disease just because of its... Uh, sexual transmissibility. So nobody really wanted to claim it. <laughs> um, so the illness was known in several countries by the name of their neighbors. Mm -hmm. So for example, the English, Italians, and Germans would call it the French disease, yes. <laughs> while the French called it the Neapolitan disease. Mm -hmm. The Dutch called it the Spanish pox. Mm -hmm. uh, the Turks called it the Christian disease. And in India, uh, the Hindus and the Muslims called it after each other. Yeah. <laughs> so this is something like nobody wants this to This comes it. from you. Yeah. This is your fault. <laughs> mm -hmm. The interesting thing is like, it, it is definitely called after neighbors, but like the, the reason why the Dutch called it the Spanish pox, the Spanish disease is because during that time, the Netherlands was, was ruled by Spain, mm -hmm. which the Dutch didn't like. Yeah, yeah. So whenever something bad happened in the Netherlands, everyone just blamed the Spanish. The Spanish yeah. Yeah. It's a damn Spanish fault. I think that's very funny. Yeah. Thank you for that. You're great. You're so welcome. So that is what syphilis is. But why are we talking about it? Like, where did it come from? It's interesting to mention here that like syphilis, as we understand it, hasn't existed in Europe or even what we call like the old world for, for like time immemorial. 
It's something that like emerged suddenly and has since like dominated a lot of like sexual transmissibility uh, discourse. Discourse. <laughs> discourse. There's a lot of discourse. Um, it first appears in 1492, and there are a couple of theories as to why it appears around that time. The origins of syphilis, if you will. In 1492, as you know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, as every school child knows. So the first theory is that it originated from the Americas. And this makes sense, because European accounts of syphilis only began to appear right after the Columbian exchange. Um, and that's what we call the event where Europe suddenly gets access to all of the species and diseases and everything that exists in the New World, and they get access to everything that exists in the Old World. One big argument for this is that many of Columbus's crew had syphilis in Europe after the voyage. Fernandez de Ovideo and Rui Diaz de Ila, two physicians with Spanish origins, who were present at the moment when Christopher Columbus returned from America, described the disease in interesting ways. The former, who was sent by King Ferdinand of Spain in the New World, confirmed that the disease he had encountered for the first time in Europe was familiar at the time to the indigenes of America, who had already developed elaborate methods of treatment for this disease. So basically saying that, like, I've seen this before. I've seen this in America, and they already knew how to treat it. And that's evidence for it already existing there. Rui Diaz de Ila is also the one that stated in a manuscript that Pinzon de Palos, the pilot of Columbus, and also other members of the crew already suffered from syphilis on their return from the New World, and he theorized that it came from the island of Hispaniola, it's modern-day Haiti and the Dominican Republic. So these two doctors basically thought that that's where it came from. Another theory, I'm going to return to this theory, but another theory is that syphilis has always been in the Old World, as in like Europe and Eurasia, However, scholars only really began to distinguish it as a unique disease around the same time as the Columbian Exchange, and that this way of viewing syphilis simply got popular due to the popularization of the printing press at the same time. It's not the most popular theory, but I think it's worth a mention. There's also a combination theory as well, and that's the idea that syphilis originated in the Old World, and that a strain of it traveled with humans to America during human migration to the area, a strain that mutated over thousands of years and was eventually brought back via Columbus and his crew, replacing an already endemic syphilis in the old world. Um, and I saw some people theorizing that this new strain, you know, was a bit more virulent, a bit more deadly, uh, and that's why it replaced this potential endemic syphilis. This idea is also not very popular, but it's also one of the like strong contenders, and I want to mention it. There's also another idea that a bacterium that causes the disease of Yaws which is very similar in Sub-Saharan Africa, traveled up to Europe along with the early slave trade around this time, and that the different climate led to the disease expressing itself very differently, uh, along with a European lack of immunity to this disease. Also, not correct, but it's one of the many, many theories that exist. And I mention that this is a very controversial subject because it is hotly debated for a few reasons. Some scientists see the Colombian theory as blaming Native Americans for spreading syphilis to the rest of the world, which makes no sense, even if the theory was true. And others want to like clean up the legacy of Columbus, basically arguing that Columbus was just an explorer, he did nothing wrong, um, but if he brought back syphilis with his crew, it's evidence of him and his crew maybe not being like the best kind of explorers in the new world. 
The consensus, however, is that it probably came from the Colombian exchange because of the timing. There's also some bone analysis that I'll get to, uh, the rapid spread that only happened after 1492 and so on. We weren't able to really know for sure until radiocarbon dating entered the scene. In 2011, some scientists analyzed bone fragments that showed some syphilitic damage and used radiocarbon dating on them to like find a good date. Scientists for a long time had collected syphilitic bones, basically, because they do syphilis damages bone, mm-hmm. uh, which is horrifying to think of, by the way. And there was some discourse about like trying to f- date these ones like to an exact time, because if you could find bones that happened before 1492, it basically disproves the Colombian theory. And this radiocarbon dating did date them to right before 1492. Boom. Case closed. Twist ending. Um, Syphilis actually did exist in Europe before the Columbian Exchange. Can't argue with carbon dating. That's forensic science right there. Except, maybe not, because these bone fragments were found primarily in coastal communities in Western Europe. Communities where people would eat mostly seafood. Seafood, which feeds on older carbon on the seafloor, which interferes with radiocarbon dating. (laughs) And furthermore, when applying the same method on bone fragments in the Americas with the syphilitic damage, they can be measured to be several of thousands of years old. So the pendulum of where we think the origin has been has been flung from one side to the other and back again. I wonder how long it took to to kind of go back and forth on this theory. Can you imagine doing this for like six months and just <laughs> like losing your mind over it? Because like, is the Colombian exchange? No, it's not. Western Europe. Maybe it Col- is. Maybe it yeah. is. Maybe not. No, it's not. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, from what I can see, like it is, it kind of came from the peer review of the initial study in mm-hmm. 2011. Mm-hmm. So as they were doing the study, they did initially find evidence that it was before 1492. Mm-hmm. But as they sort of like refined their study, it mm-hmm. sort of swung back the other way. So mm-hmm. like initial results showed like conclusive evidence yeah. of like, hey, entire theory disproven, yeah. shaking up the history of epidemiology. Yeah. Uh, and then, like, actually, they yeah. eat seafood, and seafood eats carbon. Carbon interferes with radiocarbon dating. So it's like it's this like weird thing where it, they give you a scope, and the scope is before fourteen ninety two, and then it just narrows to just like oh, actually they start at fourteen ninety two. Um, I have a question though. How does eating seafood interfere with carbon dating of your bones? Mm. So the way carbon dating works is i don't know how it works but the way it works is they measure because carbon decays at a set rate Mm -hmm. as far as i can tell as far as i know and using like how how far something has decayed you can sort of like extrapolate like how how long ago was it that this carbon like existed on the surface of earth Mm-hmm. But carbon that has been cemented in the bottom of the sea floor is differently irradiated oh. from the sun's rays mm-hmm. and therefore decays at a different rate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And therefore it can seem that carbon from the seafloor can seem older than it actually is. So they would eat mostly seafood? Yes. Did them eating the seafood have an effect on their bones or was it the fact that, that those fish lived in the area affect the decay of the bones on the seafloor? Like, no, did, no, no. did so, the bones so, change during their lifetime, or was the decay different after they were actually on the seafloor? It, it changes during their lifetime, right? Because, like, if you eat carbon... If you eat carbon, like, that has been on the surface, mm-hmm. 
that carbon doesn't really change that much. Like you okay. eat, like it goes into a cow, for example, and then you eat the cow. The carbon that has existed like on in the dirt hasn't changed that much. All right. But if you're eating carbon that's like been on the sea floor, it goes into like some seaweed. A fish mm-hmm. eats it. A bigger fish eats that. It just mm-hmm. goes for like a little bit. That carbon that's been on the sea floor is a bit different than the carbon that's been on the, on the surface. Okay, road. I see. That's I see. how it works. Very interesting. And then that carbon gets into the human system and becomes like part of our bones. So, and then you end up with bones that are the carbon, carbon like atoms that are both older um, according to the, to the decay system, right? Mm-hmm. That like are measured to be after 1492. That's most of your bones. But then mm-hmm. we have some carbon atoms that are decaying slightly differently that mm-hmm. can sort of like skew the results to make it seem older than it actually mm-hmm. was. That's why after they've done like tons of like recalculations and like adjustments for this to yep. like really compensate, none of the results show before 1492. That's very interesting. How cool. I knew a little bit about carbon dating of ice cores, um, mm-hmm. like in glaciers, but that's a little bit different than carbon dating of organisms which consume other carbon organisms. You would have to add, like, there, there's some deep carbon science here yeah. that I don't really get. Yeah. Like, the gist of it is, like, carbon decays, and you can measure how old the carbon is by how yeah. much it decays. Yeah. Um, anyway, that was a, a small uh, side note, but go <laughs> on, please. Yes, thank you. Very exciting and stressful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I should also mention that the idea that there may have been some sort of like endemic syphilis before uh, the Columbian exchange could potentially be true. Like there is some teeth to it. Mm -hmm. However, more recent studies on syphilis that have tested uh, the syphilis bacteria from people from Asia, uh, Africa, Europe, all over the world, basically. They're all traced back genetically to a common ancestor sometime in the time frame around 1492. Which basically shows that like all the syphilis that exists in Eurasia and Africa comes from the Colombian exchange because mm. uh, some bad sailors took it back with them. Mm. Further studies on bone fragments in other parts of the world, though, are still needed. And this is still an ongoing debate. Most evidence shows that it's probably Columbus, but we can't know for sure. Uh, however, I will right now, almost immediately, run into uh, and mention some more evidence of the Columbian theory, because I'm going to quickly mention the outbreak in Europe of 1495. So, syphilis has reached Europe. Now what? (laughs) You're probably wondering how we got into this situation. (laughs) Zooming in on like a spiral bacteria in Spain. Um, There is one huge outbreak which sort of starts the European and also like Asian and African uh, history of syphilis. And that is the outbreak in 19... No, in 1495 uh, among French troops who were laying siege to the city of Napoli in modern-day Italy. Uh, when I've been writing the script, I have been flipping the 4 and 9 so many times, so there might... I might have written, like, 1994 sometime in the script. That's One why. year before, before I was born. One year before I was born, <laughs> they were still the king of France syphilis. was laying siege to <laughs> Italy. Yeah. In August of 1494, King Charles VIII of France led his army of 50,000 soldiers and a large artillery train into northern Italy. The soldiers were mostly mercenaries, Flemish, Gascon, Swiss, Italian, and Spanish, uh, and were accompanied by 800 camp followers, including cooks, medical attendants, and prostitutes. A, a critical part of the military train at this I'm point. Gonna, I'm going to talk about uh, sex workers and, in, in, and the military v- later on, too, because this good. is a, an important element when speaking about syphilis. 
Um, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Charles's objective was to take over the kingdom of Naples from Alfonso II so he could use Naples as a base from which to launch a campaign to the Crusades. The soldiers of Alfonso II were mostly Spanish mercenaries. You keep saying this. Is this going to matter? or do you It's, just... ma- it's going to matter significantly <laughs> this is, in a second. This is the second time and you were like, and they were Spanish. They were Spanish mercenaries. They were Spanish. And they were roommate Spanish. Because here comes some more evidence for the Colombian theory of origin, as some of the soldiers on both sides, but mostly on the French, had actually been to the New World with Columbus himself. Ah. And they for sure had syphilis during that time. And they spread syphilis along their military campaign. The campaign in Italy went well. Mm -hmm. They won. Mm -hmm. And what do you do when you win a military campaign? You party hard. While occupying Naples, the French soldiers indulged in a long bout of celebration and debauchery. Uh, And within a short space of time it came apparent that they were afflicted by a terrible disease. Oh no, I wonder what it is. (laughs) (laughs) There are some historians of the time who disagree with the time frame, however, because in 1492, the monarch of what would become Spain ordered the expulsion of the entire Jewish population, many of whom moved to southern Italy, and many wanted entry to Rome itself, which wasn't allowed. And during this ongoing uh, drama, (laughs) during this discourse... People settled outside of the Roman gates and fell victim to an outbreak of syphilis. This was then blamed on the Jews uh, and claimed to show evidence of syphilis before the invasion by the French in the area. So they may not have come with the French, may have come with the mercenaries that Alfonso hired, also Mm. Spanish. Mm. But it's a bit unclear whether or not this timing is correct or not. But it's important to mention that like, even if... It just shows like how virulent the disease could have been because... Either it came with the French and spread like wildfire, or it came even before. I mean, like, both could have happened, honestly. Yeah. Like, you could have had Spanish mercenaries carrying it, and you could also have had the people that settled outside of Rome have it a little bit, you know? More things are possible at the same time. Mm -hmm. However, the military campaign is probably the cause of the outbreak in Europe itself. What happens after the war? The mercenaries, uh, they go home to Russia to Poland, to England, all over Europe, uh, after they all basically contract syphilis after partying and uh, pillaging most of southern Italy. By the end of 1940... No. <laughs> By the end of 1495, the epidemic had spread throughout France, Switzerland, Germany, and had reached England and Scotland in 1497. In August of 1495, the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I proclaimed that nothing like this disease had been seen before and that it was punishment from God for blasphemy. By 1500... All reliable. All reliable. <laughs> when in doubt, God did it. No, God punish is punishing us. It's, it's the gays. Yeah, it's the gays. It's the gays. It's and the it's... loose women. Yeah. And it's the socialists. Yeah. <laughs> this is how some people on YouTube actually do historical analysis. Mm-hmm. By 1500, syphilis had reached the Scandinavian countries, whoop, whoop, Britain, Hungary, Greece, Poland, and Russia. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> it was a time of world exploration, and Europeans took the disease to Calcutta in 1498, spreading that love. Uh, and by 1520, it had reached Africa, the Near East, China, Japan, and Oceania. Spreading like wildfire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When we planned this episode, we talked about wanting to not be Eurocentric, but this time... I mean, it's, it's our fault. 
it's it it's it's kind of started here. Even epidemiological studies um show that like syphilis, like while it was present in the new world in America, it didn't like spread as actively. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like when Columbus brings it back, they spread it. The it, it spreads. Everything points to us uh, picking this up in a relentless thirst for conquest and spreading this disease across the world. Because, yay, European history. (laughs) The cultural implications of this disease were significant, quickly leading to further stigmatization of sex generally, leading to a resurgence in Puritan thought, stigmatization of sex workers, and, as always in history, anti-Semitism. Doctors very much saw the disease as stemming from immoral acts, typically on behalf of unfaithful men or sex workers. The idea that a wholesome, pure, loyal wife could get syphilis was either seen as a result of an unfaithful husband, or, if you didn't have a husband, they'd assume you were a sex worker. Treatment plans often followed similar lines, arguing that treatments of sex workers should be offered to limit spread, but some doctors would simply contact the city guards and have them exiled, which would have, in their mind, a similar effect. So if you have syphilis... Get out! Just leave! Get! Get! A common proverb used in these times were For a night with Venus, a life with Mercury. Or for a more modern translation, For a night of pleasure, a life of thousand pains. Uh, This would be etched into barrels which would be filled with herbal smoke, with a little hole for the head to peek out of. A common treatment at the time, which worked as both a type of treatment and as a form of public humiliation. They I mean, would... did they put the barrels in public places? Yeah. Like, oh my god. If you had money, you could be in like a, a barrel inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they would also just have them like outside because they were like, these are big barrels. Like you would walk into them and they would like close a door behind you. Uh, and then they had like a little structure underneath them to like burn herbs and whatever. Um, How big were these barrels? Bigger if than they people. had a door that you could walk yeah. through. You have to go into, walk into the barrel itself, so you will be completely covered by the herbal smoke. You don't like to like, sit down in a tiny need... little wine barrel. You would like walk into a barrel that closed the door. You poke your head out. I need to see a picture of this barrel. I can show you um, after after the recording. Also, where do they have them? Like in 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 the street, in bars? Yeah, outside 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 of apothecaries and like doctors' offices. That's really fucked up. Yeah, and I... they and they would etch like in big letters too, like. For one night of pleasure, a thousand nights of pain. <laughs> and you would just have your little head, because you can't, you, you know, your head can't be in there because you have to breathe. Yeah. So you just have your head sticking out of the barrel, <laughs> like, like so-ish. Smoke coming out, like, through the, through the gaps. Crying. Crying. Shitting. Your, your dick hurts. Oh, God. Horrible. It's quite awful. Henry VIII of England... Uh, famous for many things, but maybe not for this. <laughs> Wait, was that the one who killed his wives? As far as I remember, yes, he yes, was the one. Okay. Henry VIII of England tried to close down the stews, or brothels, and communal bathhouses of London. In many other places, strict regulations were issued for brothels and bathhouses, forcing prostitutes who had disease or infections out of employment. A contemporary theory of the origin of syphilis was that a sex worker with gonorrhea had had sex with a leper. This is how disease epidemiology works back then. What? The diseases combined to become syphilis. Uh, this actually gives us a view into how they saw STIs generally, because the separation of STIs into individual diseases is a fairly new phenomenon, especially with gonorrhea, like you mentioned. 
I am still not over how they thought that syphilis was just gonorrhea upgraded. Yeah. <laughs> just gonorrhea. Gonorrhea too. <laughs> Pus harder. For most of European history, they just see it as like one of many STIs. Mm. Uh, restricting sex more is good to limit this. Mm. Not too much else like happens with it until 1767. Uh, when John Hunter, a famous physician of venereal disease at the time, conducted an experiment consisting of inoculation of the urethral secretion of a gonorrhea patient in the prepuce of a healthy patient, uh, the last developing syphilis shortly afterwards. Proof! <laughs> Evidence. <laughs> we, we see gonorrhea become syphilis. I also just like how you can do medical experiments by just taking someone healthy and being like, I'm going to inject you mm -hmm. with gonorrhea yeah. and see if you develop syphilis. Yeah. Like, is that something you want? Yeah, I always, when I, when I read about studies like this, I always wonder um, how much of informed consent was there involved. I gotta imagine that these study. people were paid. Like, yeah, but like, were they, they, told... like they were in debtor's prison or something and yeah. just like, hey, you can get out if you get syphilis. I guess so. I mean, do, but do you think they were rewarded at all? Because I'm thinking a lot of these studies were also conducted on people who were not really seen as people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like mental patients and like sex workers mm -hmm. and prisoners. It's possible. Um, by the way, I'm going to talk about that. Fun. <laughs> I'm going to talk about um, studies on syphilis mm -hmm. and it's going to be horrible. Rough. <laughs> it's going to be rough, but... <laughs> Anyway, after John Hunter's experiment, he thought that it proved that syphilis results from gonorrhea. Uh, but what he had missed was that the patient from whom the urethral secretion was taken had both syphilis and gonorrhea. Yeah. <laughs> he just had both of them. This experiment was highly acknowledged and influential at his time, which kind of set back like the study of STIs generally mm -hmm. for quite a couple of decades because mm. this was seen as like that's definitive proof that this is one and the same mm. disease mm. at different stages mm -hmm. which um just shows that even in like the 1400s they barely knew what it was and it took hundreds of years to even figure out like what it even is all right so now that we've talked about the origin of syphilis i wanted to talk about uh, the history from like the 19th century and also talk about like more modern treatments for it and also about its elimination. So in 1905, the organism that causes syphilis, Treponema pallidum, was first identified by Fritz Schauden and Eric Hoffmann, German guys. They sound extraordinarily German. Very German. Hoffmann is one of those. If your name is Hoffmann, you're bound to discover something. Do you know why, why it's named the way that it is? No, I don't know Latin. So Treponema is a genus of spiral-shaped bacteria, but the pallidum part comes from the Latin word for pale. Um, and it was chosen because bacteria was really difficult to stain for microscopy and appeared very pale under the microscope and very hard to see. So it was it was named pallidum. So it's a... It's a pale facility. It's a, it's a, it's a pale facility. <laughs> yeah. That's what it's named. Pale, pale spiral, spiral boy. Pale spiral. The very first effective treatment for syphilis was arsphenamine, which was a derivative of arsenic with bactericidal properties. And that was a major improvement over the inorganic 
mercury compounds that had been used previously. Uh, arsenic. It had I mean... it had its <laughs> uh, it had its uh, it faults. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a perfect treatment. It cures syphilis and also having a dick. <laughs> You didn't really talk about mercury, so I'm going to mention it here a little bit. So mercury was a common and long-standing treatment for syphilis, originally having been suggested by the well-known Persian physician Ibn Sina in the canon of medicine in the 11th century. We actually talked about him uh, extensively in our episode about Islamic medicine. Mm -hmm. So mercury had been administered to syphilitic patients throughout history in various ways, including by rubbing it on the skin, by mouth or a fumigation method in which mercury was vaporized over fire and the patients were exposed to the vapors. That sounds bad for it, the body. It's very bad. It killed the bacteria, but it also killed it you. you yeah. <laughs> if, listen, you have if, two minutes to live without, without syphilis. Go for it. If there's no host, there's no syphilis. <laughs> Um, no, it actually did kill the bacteria, but it also would um, would cause tooth loss, uh, oh, gum, gum and tongue ulcers, and bowel hemorrhages. Um, I think it's important to mention here because like this would have been another syphilis strain. Because if it's in the 11th century, that's before 1492. Yeah, it's before this type of strain reached here. So this mm -hmm. must have been some like another strain but i i you know if 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 you wrote about it in the 11th century that's like 300 years before 1492 so i'm just like yeah but i mean syphilis we said it was probably common in the new world but that doesn't mean that it wasn't present in mm. other parts of the world as mm -hmm. well yeah maybe there were different strains and maybe the strain that was brought back mm. from uh the new world kind of like took over mm. but clearly it existed in the world before that also mm. since it's mentioned in in this book okay yeah so the mercury treatment was uh, somewhat effective, but it also had these, um, uh, you know, side effects that were very unpleasant and unfortunate. But it was believed that the mercury treatment would cause the patients to salivate, which would expel the disease. Why did they think that? I don't know. But, salivate? Yeah, salivate. For some reason, they thought that the, the bacteria would come out with the saliva. Just drool. Just drool. And you're cured. Despite the side effects, the uh, mercury exposure as a form of treatment would continue up until the 19th century when a new and more effective treatment uh, would emerge. So arsphenamine was a major treatment that was really held as like a turning point for, for syphilis treatment. Mm -hmm. And a fun fact about this drug is that the project to find it was also one of the first organized team efforts to optimize the biological activity of a lead compound through systematic chemical modifications. And this is basically what pharmaceutical like companies do now. Like mm. this is this is basically like the, the fundamental process of finding a drug. Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean? Like they're trying to find like a specific chemical to counter specific disease or what, what, what does it mean? So a lead compound is a pharmaceutical target that has a desirable pharmaceutical activity, mm. but that has a suboptimal structure. And what this often means is like, you know, maybe it has poor absorption or, or it's uh, metabolized in a way that you don't want it to, uh, or it binds to non-specific targets in the body. So then the process to optimize it basically aims to change its structure so that it has a better, like better, better effect or better absorption or better metabolism. Mm. Okay. Um, and this is what they did. They found this lead compound and they just worked to, they worked with it mm -hmm. in that way. Okay. And so they, they, um, they obtained arsphenamine and arsphenamine was actually also named uh, drug number 606 because it was the 606 compound that they came up with <laughs> in the lab. <laughs> this is drug 606. Yeah. 
Unfortunately, the treatment had many shortcomings. It was difficult to administer and required an extensive treatment regimen. And ultimately, it was also found that the drug had potentially fatal side effects. God. <laughs> um, this might cure you, might kill you. Yeah, yeah. Another interesting treatment in the early 20th century was the infection of the patient with malaria. Which Yes, I've heard about yes, this. This is so fascinating. It's really interesting because... As you know, malaria causes high fever. Mm -hmm. And as we also know, this bacteria has a very narrow window of temperature that it can tolerate. So by infecting the patient with malaria and yeah. causing high fever in the patient, you're basically just boiling the bacteria as yeah. it's inside you. Yeah. And then malaria is quite easy to treat with quinine. Yeah. Um, so then you kill you kill the bacteria and then you kill the, the, the pathogen. Yeah. You kill the, the parasite. Which is great. In 1946, two American physicians also came up with electropyrexia as a means to treat syphilis, which is the induction of artificial fever by an ultra-high frequency electric field or a high frequency magnetic field. What the fuck sci-fi bullshit is this? <laughs> I, Get into the resonance chamber, Dr. <laughs> Freeman. We will vibrate you using electrochocks to get the syphilis out of your dick hole. I mean, listen, it's because it causes a fever and you don't have to infect them with fucking malaria how parasites. Does, how does high frequency magnetic fields cause a... Do they just like put you in a microwave? I don't know. I don't know. I, honestly, I don't really know the, how it works. The first I mean, microwave ever invented was to cure dick fever. <laughs> dick fever. This is... This is sci-fi bullshit. Yeah. I needed to know this. This is cool. Now I, f I, I regret not looking into this more because I, I read about this here and then I just, <laughs> I've never heard about it anywhere else. Like what happened with this? Did they, did it go anywhere? Do we have this today? Do we have this today? <laughs> Do people with syphilis just get into like, elect like well, a microwave? Well, they don't. They don't because we have penicillin. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, but it's it's so wonderful that like medicine in this like narrow slice of time mm -hmm. right before penicillin but we have microwave like human microwaves like ultra high frequency electric fields yeah. like we have that but we don't have antibiotics yet yeah, so we yeah, just yeah. like use sci-fi solutions yeah. I love this I need to look into this more but so they would induce artificial fever so they wouldn't have to actually infect people with malaria um, smart and both malaria and this electropyrexia they didn't really catch on because Despite the side effects of uh, arsphenamine, it was still the preferred treatment method up until penicillin was discovered. Mm. So in 1943, John Mahoney of the US Public Health Service found that penicillin was effective in treating syphilitic rabbits and quickly moved to clinical trials, which proved successful and that led to syphilis reaching an all-time low in the last years of the 1950s. Big win. Um, big win for, for medicine. Unfortunately, it began to rise again in the 1960s. And while physicians and public health officials at the time would often blame the three Ps for this, which is promiscuity, permissiveness, and the pill, it was actually due to a cutback in funding for public venereal uh, disease programs. I feel like the three Ps are very much like... It's, they're, so, they're blaming women so hard for yeah, it, too. Yeah, it does, yeah. like, it's like, because promiscu of women. <laughs> promiscuity... Like, historically, men have rarely been accused of, pro of yeah, promiscuity yeah, yeah. as a yeah. bad thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, pill, permissiveness, yeah, all right. But, like, <laughs> and the pill is, like, like yeah. these women having sex, yeah. spreading syphilis. So, while these developments in medicine and biomedical science were happening, Western societies in the early 20th century were increasingly experiencing concern about sexual mores, the family, and the nature of urban life. 
Syphilis and other STIs were regarded as a dimension of the breakdown of traditional values that emphasized domesticity, the sanctity of the home, and sexual purity. While syphilis was previously regarded as a failing of the individual or a carnal scourge, it was now redefined as a family poison, which could be transmitted to one's innocent wife and children. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of like almost propaganda like yeah, yeah. advertisements mm-hmm. that are just wonderful. Mm-hmm. And if I if I remember, I'll post about it on Twitter after mm-hmm. after this, where mm-hmm. it's like they'll they'll show a man happy with his family, just yeah. like this man took his shots every week yeah. and no longer has syphilis. Yeah. And then just like a guy with like an eye patch, a crutch. <laughs> He's like poor, no family, has one shoe on, sitting <laughs> sitting like on, on the side of the street, just like this man did not take his yeah. shots every week. Yeah, there was a lot of like public health campaigns mm-hmm. um, it, it, like in the early 20th century mm-hmm. um, that I'm going to talk about because oh, they really they really tried to, you know, like educate the mm. public about like testing the, the and scourge. treatment. Yeah, the scourge. The carnal scourge. <laughs> um, the dick fever. Yeah, so it was, like we said, it was redefined as family poison, which one could transmit to their wife and their children. Um, So there's a bit of a shift in how syphilis was viewed Mm -hmm. in society and the society we live in. Um, In the United States, the early 20th century also saw an increase in immigration. And many doctors and social critics blamed immigrants for bringing syphilis and other STIs into the country. These damn immigrants! Even though they and they actually had medical examinations at the ports where the immigrants would come mm-hmm. in, and they they like they didn't see higher incidence of any STIs. But this did not stop physicians and like public health officials to lobby for. Um, for the introduction of stricter immigration policies, because why the hell not? (laughs) So there were a lot of fears around sexually transmitted infections, and this reveals deep cultural fears around changing norms around sexuality, as the late Victorian era had previously placed great value on chastity, discipline, restraint, homogeneity. So all of this was changing, and like we see this in in how society was treating Mm -hmm. STIs. Yeah. During World War One, there was much concern surrounding the sexual health of the soldiers, as STIs could render soldiers unfit for service. So they didn't actually care about their health, they just cared that they couldn't do their job. So they made a lot of efforts to provide sexual education to the troops, and they even had campaigns to, to prevent soldiers from visiting sex workers, because that was like a... A big reason why syphilis was rampant around military ranks. Yeah, because like um, soldiers away on war is like a very lucrative demographic yeah. and customer base yeah, for sex yeah. workers. This is a very, it's a very sensitive topic mm-hmm. because I don't want to like, obviously I don't want to blame the sex workers without blaming them. There were, there were not a lot of preventative methods yeah. <laughs> at the time that were available to them to protect themselves Mm. and to protect others. Educational materials repeatedly warned American soldiers, a German bullet is safer than a whore. (laughs) Jesus. I I feel so bad saying Mm -hmm. this. Red light districts were closed down and more than 20,000 women were quarantined as part of a comprehensive venereal disease program. Thousands more were incarcerated. And this was presented by officials not as a punitive measure, but as a public health measure to prevent the spread of STIs. Um, just so you know, latex condoms were available mm-hmm. at this time, and we, we knew, people knew at the time even, that condoms would decrease the transmission of syphilis. However, the military declined to provide them to the troops 
because they considered it an encouragement of promiscuity. Instead, the military established a series of prophylactic stations where soldiers could take a disinfectant treatment after exposure. The treatment consisted of an injection into the urethra, mm -hmm. which was a painful uh, procedure and intended to serve as a repellent um, to to sexual sexual activity. Oh, okay. So it's it's uh like it was like it's supposed to be unpleasant. It's supposed to be unpleasant so that you know people wouldn't yeah. have sex. Yeah. Um. However, mm, I, f I feel like wouldn't that just mean that people go have sex and don't do the exposure thing? Yeah, I mean, it can mean that. A lot of people did seek these prophylactic measures. Mm -hmm. Despite these measures, syphilis rates remained high, so mm -hmm. it didn't actually like do anything. Big surprise. So now we, we get to the 1930s, at which point President Franklin Roosevelt appointed Thomas Perrin as Surgeon General. Peran came up with a five-year plan to eradicate syphilis based on traditional public health concepts. He called for the establishment of diagnostic centers where individuals could get free confidential tests. He also called for immediate treatment of infected individuals as like delay in treatment of obviously like leads to worse symptoms. Uh, the first step he advocated for was contact tracing. <laughs> In the 1930s, listen, like, that's yeah. pretty good. They yeah. had contact tracing during, like, the Spanish flu as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Uh, lastly, he advocated for mandatory premarital and prenatal testing to prevent infection among marital partners and children, as well as recommending a massive public education program aiming to shed light on common symptoms and treatment options. So his program was interesting because he kind of stepped away from traditional, like, moralistic perspectives on STIs because those perspectives led to syphilis and other STIs, like, never really being discussed in public. So yeah. people would not talk about them. And there they would be, like, a stigma. There would be a stigma. Help, yeah. Exactly. There would be a stigma around it. People didn't, like, didn't talk about it, so they didn't know what to look out for. They didn't know what options were available. So this was a really good program. Mm. Um, it definitely had some flaws, like, for example, his uh, step where he really wanted people to get tested before entering marriages. Um, I think in the end, it was found that only like 1% of the syphilis cases could be uh, traced back to like couples, married couples. Mm. So he really didn't account for the fact that people were having a lot of sex outside yeah. <laughs> marriages. But he, did, he did his best. He did his best, but you know. So it wasn't a perfect program, mm. but it did see an increase in the use of diagnostic tests and treatment facilities, and um, also led to a better public understanding of the disease and of ways to avoid it. Mm -hmm. Now, we can't have an episode on syphilis without mentioning <laughs> a very infamous mm -hmm. clinical study. You've been screaming about it. I can hear it. I can hear yeah. it. Like we are... people listening to this episode are screaming about that. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Mm -hmm. It's it's a very unethical, very infamous study. And we, we really feel like it's, uh, it's, it's really important to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So the study was conducted between 1942 and 1972 by the United States Public Health Service. America! <laughs> Uh, the, by the United States Public Health Service in collaboration with Tuskegee University. And the study aimed to observe the development of syphilis in the study participants. The researchers enrolled 600 poor African-American male sharecroppers from Alabama, 399 of which had syphilis, and told them that they will receive free treatment for bad blood, which was a colloquialism describing a variety of conditions including fatigue, anemia, and syphilis. 
During the study, the men received hot meals, medical care, and burial service. However, when funding for the treatment was lost, the participants were not informed that they would no longer receive medical care and would just be studied. Facing insufficient participation in the study, the health department wrote to the participants to offer them a last chance treatment, which was not a treatment at all and was just a spinal tap used for sample collection. None of the participants were told that they had syphilis and none of them received penicillin even after the antibiotic had been proven to successfully treat syphilis. Mm. So they were just used as... Uh, like to see how the disease progressed. Yeah, they were just yeah. observed to see like the disease progression. Mm. They were not given treatment. So it started in 1942 and penicillin was discovered in 43. So they could have easily given them penicillin, mm. but they didn't. This study is an example of poor medical ethics for a variety of reasons, primarily because the participants were not informed of the purposes of the study, because they were withheld treatment, and because they were specifically targeted due to their race and socioeconomic class. The good news is that the study led to major changes in U.S. law and the implementation of regulation aiming to protect study participants, mm -hmm. including stricter law on informed consent, communication of diagnosis, and accurate reporting of test results. Like, that's something that, like... It's extremely important, I feel like, in, in a lot of medical studies these days, right? Like, they they really want to drill that yeah. into, like, mm -hmm. students from the beginning that, like... Mm -hmm. uh, you have to have informed consent yeah. and the participants they have to know, know what you're doing, yeah. what, like, what the They need to involves. be, like, debriefed, like, yeah. pre-briefed. They need to be able to, like, leave whenever... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, this study had so many things wrong with it, like on so many levels. They weren't mm. told anything. They were, I mean, like at first they just kind of, I guess, withheld information, but then they straight up lied to them, yeah. you know, because at first they didn't tell them they had syphilis. They told them they had bad blood, whatever the fuck that means. <laughs> and then... Lots of bad blood. Yeah, whatever. And then, but then they specifically told them that they were going to get treatment for it. Yeah. And they just collected samples. Yeah. Um, so then it was straight up lying to their faces. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it was a, a huge scandal and we still look at it as like an incredibly unethical yeah. study. Um, it's like one of the classic mm -hmm. sort of like, this is... This like, is what you don't do. Violations in medical ethics. This is what you don't do. Yeah. Uh, and also I'm talking about like distrust of the medical system generally exactly. by, by like... Like, like African-Americans. By African-American people. Um, you can see why. Yeah. Because, like, yeah. I think we need to do an episode where we like dig, specifically deep talk on, about this. Because yeah. I think this is a really important topic. Especially when you talk about, you know, the pandemic and, like, vaccine mm -hmm. skepticism from the African-American communities. Because there is a reason for that, right? Yeah. And, and the Tuskegee experiment is, like, an example of how the medical establishment has mistreated the African mm. communities in the past. Yeah. And that kind of sheds a light on why those communities are skeptical. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to talk about that a bit more in detail. Yeah. So the good news is that the experiment actually led to some legislation changes. The bad news <laughs> is that the Tuskegee study is not one of a kind. Similar studies were carried out in Guatemala from 1946 to 1948. The experiments were led by physician John Charles Cutler, who was actually also involved in the later stages of the Tuskegee study. He along oh, I know course. yeah like <laughs> everything's connected. I know it's it's like have you not done oh enough my harm? God. There, I feel like when it comes to like syphilis like making things worse when it comes to syphilis mm -hmm. there's like <laughs> there's two there's two people you can blame it's this guy and Christopher Columbus. Yes. <laughs> well, I, 
when pe- when someone decides to make th- things worse, mm-hmm. why do they never stop? <laughs> they just like they're born and their whole life purpose is to just be <laughs> I'm going awful. To create problems on purpose. <laughs> I'm going to create an environment that is so toxic. <laughs> I'm going to create an epidemic that is so virulent. <laughs> I mean, we're making jokes, but like, wait until I tell you. Oh no! I I actually had to really hold back with this section because um, you can actually find notes from this Guatemalan experiment and they are graphic. Oh God. Uh-huh. Um, okay. Let me, let me tell you. So, so this physician, he collaborated with other medical professionals. He collaborated with some Guatemalan health ministries and officials, and he had funding from the United States National Institutes of Health. So what they did is they would infect soldiers, sex workers, prisoners, and mental patients with syphilis, as well as with other sexually transmitted infections, and treat them with penicillin. And the the idea is that they wanted to study the effects of the antibiotic. Mm -hmm. Um, They actively infected people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's interesting to me is that, so this happened in 1946, but penicillin was discovered in 1943. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm guessing this was some form of clinical study, right? Yeah. I mean, they're testing, because like penicillin... There are many kinds of penicillin, right? Yeah. They need to be like fine-tuned to diseases and like like dosages and things like that. So yeah. I can see like this is one of the like early tests of yeah. like on humans. how do we yeah. use penicillin on humans yeah. in regards to syphilis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Still messed up to actively infect people no, to do it. I mean, honestly, like you can find people who will gladly sign up for a potential cure. You don't have to like infect people. I mean, the the fact that they would target soldiers, sex workers, prisoners mental patients just the 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 most vulnerable groups Mm. people that you can like easily abuse easily abuse nobody cares about them right Mm -hmm. yeah so they just wanted to study the effects of the antibiotic um the penicillin injection would come after the disease would cause severe damage to on their bodies so you know they i guess they wanted stage yeah i guess they they also wanted to no, like penicillin, like is penicillin effective in mm. cases cases of tertiary syphilis, or is it only effective like in the primary, secondary? So they really let them progress through the disease mm. until they were like just super bad. Sometimes months after the initial infection, Jeez. or or ever. I mean, they didn't. They also didn't treat everybody. Oh my god! Some, of, some just... of them they just left to. to what's the point of the study? <laughs> just to see how the disease progresses. That's awful. It's super awful. Some subjects were also infected with other STIs like gonorrhea in just, addition to syphilis just so for fun they just wanted i mean it's not for it's fun like for they, flavor they wanted to see how the stis interact they wanted to see oh. if maybe the penicillin can like maybe can it treat both does it only mm. treat one of them how does it interact you yeah. know all right um so i won't go into detail here you can find some of the notes of the study online if you want to read about it if you want to have a nightmare yeah because they they did document the health status of the participants and the the experiments led to the death of at least 83 participants. Good God, that's a lot of people. In October 2010, the United States government formally apologized and requested an investigation of the study, which then concluded the study to be a gross violation of ethics. The Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethics assembled a panel of international experts to review the current state of medical research around the world and ensure that this does not happen again. Great. <laughs> Um, 50 years after the fact but okay yeah, i mean I, listen it's it's a good thing it's not yeah. it's not a bad thing the thing that i want to talk about is that human rights activists in guatemala called for the subject's families to be compensated and multiple lawsuits have been filed against the united states government as well as private institutions involved in the studies 
Um, so the first lawsuit was filed against the United States government, and it failed on the reason that the United States government has immunity from liability for actions committed outside of the United States. So as long, like, if it's not on American land, yeah. it can do basically whatever the fuck it wants. Yeah, that's why America has, like, black ops bases all over the world. Yeah. They, not just for, like, the CAA or their military, but, like, for medical research, too. Yeah. And they still have it. <laughs> Fun fact. Yeah. Um, I remember the news about their fucking, like, secret prisons in Iraq. Mm -hmm. I remember that shit. Mm. Anyway, B Obama and Bush uh, and Trump and, I guess, Biden all belong in fucking The Hague. Try them all for war crimes. Crossing humanity. The lawsuit launched against... <laughs> The lawsuit launched against Johns Hopkins University, the pharmaceutical company Bristol-Myers Squibb, and the Rockefeller Foundation was admitted in 2019. <laughs> of course the Rockefellers are involved in this. Yeah. Uh, so it was admitted in 2019. So hopefully the plaintiffs will collect damages. But mm. as of right now, the lawsuit is still happening and we, we're not really sure like what's going to happen. Mm. Um, I think they're asking for $1 billion in damages. Mm -hmm. And uh, personally, I think that should be in... 1946 dollars yeah so adjusted for inflation because <laughs> like many of these pharmaceutical companies like a billion dollars is like nothing exactly it's nothing like myers was part of it did you yeah mm -hmm. they're as far if i remember correctly they're a multi-billion dollar company yeah like they're they'll pay it well i hope they do because they are very good at uh sneaking away from lawsuits like this they do have a, an army Just of weaseling, lawyers weaseling out mm -hmm. that was that was my section we hope that they get we <laughs> compensation that, yeah get justice <laughs> So before we end today's episode on syphilis, I want to give a very sort of brief overview about like, where is syphilis today? How's it feeling? What's it where, up to? Where are they now? Um, today, syphilis is still a major problem, although not even close as bad as it used to be before the advent of antibiotics. In the late 90s, there was some speculation that potentially eradicating it again um, but in the last few decades, it has once again seen a resurgence because we can't have anything nice anymore. Uh, 2020 is the year of disease. So that's how it is. Syphilis today is... It's Timothée Chalmette. <laughs> oh no. Cause outbreak in the United he, States. He might. Uh, it is mostly spread... He, is he a minor? No. No. If he is, we cut it out. But he definitely is a twink. He is a twink. Which is relevant uh, because it is mostly spread between men who have sex with men. I'm pretty sure he's straight. He's, he's 26. Okay, search for... Tell me... Tell, he's almost my age. Chlamydia. No. Oh. Uh, yeah. Syphilis today is mostly spread between men who have sex with men, which is a medical category. However, it is important to say that syphilis is increasing across all demographics, all genders, sexualities, although mostly with young people. Uh, because apparently... We're not wrapping it enough at Pride. Um, I actually have a bit of a funny story here uh, because it is increasing among younger people. So while living in a dorm room at uni, every year, without fail, the university health department, like the student health system, would post signs and hand out flyers begging people to get tested for a variety of STIs. Sounds normal, right? I guess they don't do this at every university, but I guess people in my university, like, boned down... So they were like, please, 
for the I, love of God. I, I, just take some con. Like they would put condoms down people's mail, like mail. Yeah. Post boxes, mm-hmm. just like please, God, it's spreading. However, they would also point out one STI at a time, like help, help, we're having a gonorrhea outbreak, and so on. And in my last year, they posted one of these things, but for syphilis, but only in my dorm building. <laughs> So I got a flyer, the people who lived in my dorm all got a flyer, but literally no one else in town or any of the other dorm buildings. Yeah. (laughs) Like, no one else got one. So they pointed out my building specifically, like, syphilis. (laughs) You have syphilis. Mia Mulder. (laughs) Come out! We know you have syphilis. I do not have syphilis, nor have I ever had syphilis. (laughs) So my dorm building may have contributed to a significant amount of Swedish cases of syphilis. Um, because Sweden gets around two to 300 cases a year. That's around the same amount of people who lived in my dorm building. Which isn't extreme, but it's enough of the disease to stay strong and persist. Um, and this pattern can be seen in many countries throughout the world. It's growing every year in almost every country. Again, mostly among men who have sex with other men. Get tested at Pride, guys. And an interesting fact I found about Swedish cases while researching, is that in almost every single area of Sweden, men are the majority of infected, except in Stockholm, where it's overwhelmingly women. I wonder why. Do you know why? I don't know. But Stockholm, (laughs) women be having syphilis. That's interesting. It is interesting. I don't know why. Hmm. The the Swedish health department doesn't offer an explanation. Mm -hmm. But syphilis today is entirely treatable with proper antibiotics. However... Syphilis can cause permanent damage to your body that cannot be cured. Uh, So it is important to get tested and get treatment early. Yeah, that's a good note to end on. Get get regular STIA tests. That's always a good good thing. If If you get a weird burning sensation or a weird, like, postule. I think even if you're not, like... Symptomatic? No, I'm just thinking, like, even if if you don't have symptoms, if you have a lot of partners or... Honestly, like, even in monogamous relationships, like, you never know. It's a good idea to get tested. It's true. Um, Don't, never trust anyone. You can trust your partner, but does it hurt to get tested, like, once a year or something? Yeah. No, it doesn't. It's also uh, weird, because sometimes some SDIs, not syphilis, but some SDIs can lay dormant. Yeah. For latent. years. Yeah. Like, syphilis can be latent. Yeah. And they can and they can be that for way for years. So you can be, you can have a little slutty period, contract something, get tested... Not show up with anything. Well, the tests do do recognize latent do syphilis. They? they do, yeah. Because well, I mean, it can still it can do, still recognize the bacteria. But do they recognize like latent other STIs? I don't know. Because I have it a depends. I have a vague memory. I may be wrong here, so don't take this as medical advice. We're not doctors, but like the it's either gonorrhea or it's some something. But like it, it sits in you. You get tested and it, it doesn't show up. But the the second you're symptomatic, mm-hmm. then you can be tested positive. So, like, even if you're, I don't know if I heard, maybe this was a myth someone told me to get to get away from, to have an excuse for maybe them cheating or something. <laughs> I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, this could have been a lie that someone told me. So that they were like, no, I did I wasn't cheating. I just had latent gonorrhea. This may have been a lie I've been told. Uh-oh. <laughs> I was reacting to your story. Yeah. Yeah, so syphilis, uh, latent syphilis can be recognized by uh, serological tests where they test your blood. Because, you know, the bacteria is still there. It Mm. just doesn't, it's dormant. It doesn't cause symptoms. Uh, But it's still there. Oh, that's good. Yeah, Yeah. so get tested. 
Yeah. All right. Let's wrap this up. How do you feel? <laughs> let's wrap this up like you should <laughs> if you're going to have sexual intercourse. Uh, how do you feel about this episode? Do you feel a burning sensation? I asked you first. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> you just wanted to do your bit. <laughs> you, compl- <laughs> you wanted to ignore so you could ask me. No. Yes. How do you feel? I feel good. The burning sensation is gone. Okay, perfect. How do you feel? I feel great. I learned a lot. I learned a lot too. I learned that uh, syphilis are tiny pasta. Yeah. That are sneaky. Tiny fusilo. Tiny sneaky pasta. I did not know that syphilis bacteria is so uh, so sneaky. I thought that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about how it uh, it, it um, escapes the immune system. Girl, so many of these pathogens are just a little <laughs> fucking little mm, sneaky bastards. bastards. I hate them. Yeah, I get that. Wait till we do an episode about cancer, because oh, that's because that's that's something to talk about. Like, do you know when people say like some something is a, a cancer on society? I feel like until you learn about how cancer like evolves and changes and evades the mm-hmm. immune system, until you've learned that, you don't fully understand like what people mean when mm-hmm. they say that. Because it's really like it's a it's a it's a monster. It's a it's always it's shifting, beast. changing, escaping beast. Yeah. I have been Mia Mulder and I do not have a burning sensation. Yes. Um, another fun fact. Um, I My legal name is Roluca, but I've started going by Salem. So I'm going to start introducing myself as Salem. So I have been Salem. Hi, Salem. Thank you. Hi, welcome, Mia. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> it's so nice to be here. And um, um, and this has been leech fest. This has been leech fest. The leeches have been tested for syphilis. They are syphilis positive. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> they have to, we have to get them on antibiotics. Yeah. Um, How did they get syphilis? I don't know. They fucked it's Columbus again. <laughs> um, we're um, having a good time, and we'll see you. No, hold on. We have to do rate us on Spotify. Oh damn it! Okay. The music you... like started up and then just instantly yeah. went away as I was like leaving it. Um, if you like the podcast, please consider leaving a review. Uh, you can do a rating on Spotify because they have those now. Um, iTunes, you can write out a little review thingy. It helps us quite a lot. Google Podcasts maybe has something. I don't know. Who even uses Google Podcasts? People people do. If you use um, Google Podcasts, right. let us know. <laughs> uh, we don't pay to advertise the show at all. Uh, so it's only word of mouth. So tell your friends, tell your family, tell your grandma. Write down the podcast like URL in like on a piece of paper. Put it in a glass bottle. Put a cap on it. And throw it into the sea, and then come get it back because it's polluting. Um, and then tell your friends about it. We hope you enjoyed the episode, mm-hmm. and we will see you next time. We will. Give me a high five. <laughs> <laughs>